turn to Titus 1. Uh, we're going to be covering Titus 1 and 2 today. And um, I want to give us kind of uh, a little bit of context for why we're here, right? Because we were in 1 Timothy for a good little while. Actually, I think that's where we, that's the only book we've done so far during sabbatical. So we've been in 1 Timothy. Um, we're not going to 2 Timothy because of the, the kind of chronological order. So basically what happened, the way these, these three, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the way they were written, is after the, the events in the book of Acts, after the book of Acts had happened, Paul was released from imprisonment and then continued his missionary work. And as part of that, he left Timothy to handle these issues in Ephesus, and he left Titus to go establish the churches in Crete. And so 2 Timothy is kind of the outlier in these, these three letters um, because it was written during Paul's second imprisonment slash final imprisonment. And it, it was to like request another visit from Timothy and give some final instructions and some stuff like that. But right now where we're at in Titus is just a few years before Paul would be martyred, um, AD like 62, 64, somewhere around there. So that's why we're going in this order the way we're doing it. So um, real quick, we're going to go ahead and dive in here. Um, so starting in verse 1, Titus chapter 1, it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word, in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So this is kind of like a normal Pauline kind of introduction that we see in a lot of his letters. Again, we have two chapters to cover. I'm not going to spend much time here. But uh, there's something important that, that will become foundational for the rest of this letter that he says here. So it says for the, verse 2 specifically says, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And that, that would tell us, that suggests that the knowledge of the truth, or what he's talking about here is the gospel, bears fruit, and that that fruit is godliness or holiness. And, and this is going to be a really important theme to remember in these letters because Paul's instructing and correcting all these various churches and church leadership by bringing his elders and pastors back to the basics, back to knowledge of the truth and knowledge of the gospel. And so it, it means that that is that fruit that the gospel provides, that holiness, that godliness, is our go-to. Like, the knowledge of the truth is sufficient for correction, for problem-solving in churches, for all this stuff that Paul is dealing with. And so he's going to build on that truth, that foundation, throughout Titus and throughout even some other letters. Um, but I wanted to, to get that kind of established as we dive in here. So um, in the next section, verses 4 and 5, he's going to kind of specify his reason for writing to Titus and then give him the instructions on how to appoint elders. Am I like ringing? I feel like it's ringing. I don't know what to do about that, and Nathaniel doesn't either, so. Oh, well. <laughs> okay, um, so verse 4 says, To Titus, my true son, and our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and, as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. Verse 6, he picks it up with the, um, the actual qualifications for elders. So I'm going to read this list, and then we'll break it down a little bit. It says, An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, second time, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money 
but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Okay, long list. Um, the good news is that this is very, very similar to the list we saw in 1 Timothy not long ago. And that's actually what we should hope for, right? Because if, if Paul is giving instructions on how to appoint elders to different churches, I think we would all hope that there's similar instructions for both of those. Otherwise, we're creating different churches, and that's not what we're here to do. So, um, so it's a good thing that this list is very similar for that reason. It's also really good because Alan explained most of it, and I have less work to do now. Um, but I will still pull out some of these. I won't have time to dive in deep to every one of them. Um, but there's a few that are particularly important, I think, especially in today's context. Uh, and so I'm just going to run through a few of these, but blamelessness being the first one, it's mentioned twice, so I feel like we have to talk about that one. Uh, it's, it's defined as living such that no charge can be brought against the elder, living a life in a way that no charge can be brought against him. And, and that's obviously important, obviously because we see it twice, but how the, I think the reasoning for that being mentioned twice, the reason it's so important is because how is an elder supposed to you know, part of an elder's job is, is determining blameworthiness. It's conflict resolution, it's counseling, it's, it's stuff of that nature. And part of that is determining blameworthiness. And how is an elder to determine if somebody is to blame if they can be accused of the same thing themselves, right? And so they have to be separated from that kind of thing. Husband of one wife, self-explanatory, big fans of monogamy around here. Um, faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. That was a little tricky. <laughs> if you're wondering if the 22-year-old bachelor is going to tell you how to parent, I'm not. Um, Paul might say a little thing or two, but uh, I, I, I want to more <laughs> say what this doesn't mean because that's important. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that the elders' children have to be saved or members of the church. Okay, the focus here, remember the context of what we're actually talking about within this list, is we're talking about the elder being able to fulfill his duties well. Okay, so that means we should be more concerned about the extent to which their children obey them. And that's specifically while they're living under their roof, while they have some level of control over whether or not their children obey them. So the, the broader question that this qualification or this attribute is asking is, is there evidence that this person, this elder, is failing at overseeing his family and his home? Okay, and I, I think what we tend to think might be a failure at overseeing your family or your home oftentimes is not. We tend to be very hard on, our, on ourselves with that, you know? Like, I tell myself that having to do my laundry a second time because I left it in there too long and it starts to smell a little weird, it's not a failure of overseeing my home, you know? It's not. And, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one. I don't trust some of you guys. Um, but but the, the point is, it's like, we're, we're not concerned so much with, you know, are his... His grown children who are living their own lives, are they in church somewhere? Like, that doesn't disqualify somebody from being an elder. It's a matter of, does he have a good idea of how to, how to oversee his own home? Because the church is really kind of a picture of the home. So that's why we care about that. Um, and that household theme continues in the next part of this list. He says, an overseer of God's household. He must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money. So a lot of these are really easy to understand. I won't go into every one of them. Um, I think being greedy, not greedy for money is a particularly important one in today's context. And I, I say that because we have seen a real kind of rise in the last decade or so 
I say that like I remember when I was 10. Um, but <laughs> a, real, a real rise in like mega churches and kind of we hear the term seeker sensitive thrown out all the time. Um, and what it, the, the theme of those things is tends to be excessive spending, right? And it's like when I say seeker sensitive, I'm talking about those who are sensitive to the seekers who just care about a cool light show during worship, not the seekers who care about the right stuff. And, and so there's a very easy, uh, very real temptation for church leadership to want to um, drive the church towards production rather than worship. Uh, and I'm very grateful that that's not something we, we deal with a ton here, but I, I still think it's one of the biggest temptations facing leadership across America and, and churches right now um, because there's this very trendy thing where it's like this church is doing it and all the people are going here, so what do we do? Um, and the, the, part of the answer to that is a prayerful eldership team, which we have. But that, that's really important because it's not just greedy for money in his own personal finances. And that's what we have to watch out for with this qualification is it's not just somebody who's not greedy for money in their own, their own life and their own finances. This person also has to be not greedy for money with regard to the church's finances. Uh, now it says, but hospitable, this is what they should be instead of we talked about what they should not be. So they should be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. Again, we understand what most of these mean, so I'm not going to dive deep, but the, the important part about this is that, that verse 9, it says, holding to the faithful message as taught. Um, what Charlie said earlier is, is particularly important right here. He said that it's not just about your opinion. You know, we all have opinions. And this is not holding to the elder's own opinion. This is holding to the faithful message as taught. Again, the gospel is sufficient. So with, with all these qualifications laid out for Titus, Paul is going to give his reasoning for the list and why it's needed. Um, this is kind of specific to Crete in these next few verses, so we won't spend a ton of time there. And then he gets to the broader issue, the issue of the heart, uh, just a few verses after that. So picking up in verse 10, says, there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party, or the Jews. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. That sounds a little familiar. Um, one, of those, one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true for this reason. Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths about the commands of people who reject the truth. So, really, this is very specific to Crete. So, I don't want to I don't want to spend too much of our time here. But I, I think it is important to recognize that we see uh, a similarity with what Paul wrote to Timothy regarding false teachers. Again, this is confirming this is good. We want to see similar things in these letters, and so we he addresses the issue of false teachers in a very similar way here. Um, as he does in 1 Timothy. And this one is specifically referring to um, the Jews that he, he references in verse 10. And these are not the, um, the hierarchical Pharisee kind of Jews that we tend to think of when we think of Jews. Uh, these, are, these are Jews who've accepted Christ as, as Savior. And they're not just living according to the law like they previously did, but these are Jews who have been saved and are living uh, in, in relationship, not just through law. Because remember, this, is post, this, this letter is post the ascension of Christ, right? Like Christ has came, the work is finished, and so they are able to obtain salvation now um, 
for real, whereas they tried with the law but never got there, right? So because these, these Jews that Paul has talked about are actually saved by grace, it makes it even more serious that they're spreading false doctrine, which is why Paul uses such strong words in this section. Now, the, the broader issue with this, the heart issue, is what he gets at in verse 15 and 16. It says, To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So Paul right here is talking about ceremonial laws of cleanliness, not, not unlike a lot of Jesus' teachings toward the Pharisees, if you can remember some of those. And that the pure here that he's referencing are not the, those who are ceremonially pure. He's referencing those who are, are spiritually pure in Christ. And that, that purity in Christ has earned them uh, this privilege, you could say, to, to overlook parts of the ceremonial law, like what meats they can eat and cleansing rituals and that sort of stuff, because those things were attempts to gain righteousness by obeying the law rather than by grace. And so for, for those, that other group who has not obtained this, this spiritual purity in Christ, the issue that was created by that was a lot bigger than just not being able to waive those few ceremonial laws around hand-washing or whatever else, right? There's a bigger issue here um, that's, that's one of the heart, and, and Charles Ellicott in his commentary says that, that evil and impurity are in the mind and heart of men. These may and often do defile and make impure the choicest gifts of God's creation. So, so clearly this uh, impurity, spiritual impurity, is a vice that we can all succumb to, right? Because it's not just ceremonial, it is spiritual. And so we're therefore at risk of that as well. And I could probably do a whole separate sermon on that, that phrase, claiming to know God, but denying him by our works. Um, but I, for now, suffice to say that I, I think we're all guilty of this. Um, I, I think we tend to downplay how easy it really is to deny God by our works while claiming to know him. So I'll let the Holy Spirit do whatever convicting he needs to do there, and we'll move on. But um, we, ha we have this list of requirements now and some instructions on how it's to be used. Like, great, if you're Titus reading this, this is super engaging. If you're one of us reading this, it's not super engaging. And so we have, we have this long list, and we have the instructions on how to use it. Um, but why on earth should anybody else care about this, right? If you're like, I'm not an elder, I have no plans to become an elder. Why on earth should I care at all about what this? And I'm so glad you asked because I have a wonderful answer. Um, so we're, the, the reality is that we're all on the same vessel. We're all part of this church. Maybe not this church, but if you're a believer, you're part of the global Big C church. And even within that, a lot of us, most of us are members of a church, of Living Hope Church or whatever church. And so we're all kind of on this, this plane together, and we really should know who our flight crew is, so to speak. You know, like, we should care about who's flying this thing. Are they qualified, or are we going to, like, crash and burn? Because both of those things happen within the church and on planes. And so <laughs> primarily because, because we're all members, that, that's why we should care, right? Like, nobody, nobody wants to go to a, a Spirit Airlines kind of church, you know, where it's like there's 
they're understaffed and there's all these weird restrictions and they don't care about their guests. Like, that's not the experience we're going for, you know? Um, we also want to avoid, what was the church that, like, beat somebody in their seat and dragged them down the center aisle? Was that United? Not church. The airline. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that United? But yeah, we don't, want to, we don't want to be that kind of an airline slash church either. Uh, but the, the point is, it's like there's, there's a lot of ways we can, uh, we can go wrong with that. And we, we don't want to avoid this bad leadership, this bad flight crew, this bad whatever. Like we don't want to avoid that, um, that kind of leadership just for our own selfish reasons. And I think that's a, that's a really uh, uncommon way of, of looking at church leadership, especially nowadays as people you know, become seekers and try churches, we, we see a lot of selfish reasoning in that process. Um, and it's, it's almost like they are at a business who's supposed to serve them rather than a church that they're supposed to serve. And that's where my whole airplane analogy really breaks apart, but it's supposed to, because we're not here to just be served by everybody. We're also here to serve others. And so it's, it's very dangerous to be a seeker looking for a church, and when you're asking your questions about leadership, we want to be asking the right questions. Like, are they making opportunities for me to serve? Like, do I know how I can serve? Do I know what that looks like? Is it clear? Are they making opportunities for me to be discipled, for me to disciple other people? Like, that's, that's the real question we should be asking about church leadership, not like, oh man, like, that service ran long today because they added all that stuff in, or like, oh, you know, worship was too quiet or too loud, or the sanctuary was too hot or too cold. Like, that's all, that's all like, stuff that's just about you. And, and we're not customers here, you know? We are parts of the body that have to work together to glorify God. And so maybe, I guess my, my hot take here is that we should consider that picking a church is not entirely about us. And, and it's, if going to if a church is going to be seeker-sensitive, to use that term, let's be sensitive to the seekers who are asking the questions about how can I serve here? How can I disciple and be discipled here? If church leadership becomes seeker-sensitive to seekers who are asking those questions, we're in a phenomenal place because we're, we're doing what God has called us to do. And so a lack of those good things in a church is, is a sign of the spiritual impurity that, that Paul has talked about in verses 15 and 16. And, and this spiritual impurity is what elders must be able to spot and to correct and, and act accordingly. And, and so this is why Paul will go on, we're going into chapter 2 here, he's going to tell Titus how he has to be different than these false teachers. And, and so in chapter 2, he instructs, instructs Titus on how to lead a bunch of these different groups, these different demographics, um, starting with the older men as our first group. So in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. So we're no longer, shift has happened, we're no longer talking just about elders. We're talking about all older men in the church. So clearly, it's not just elders who have a certain standard that they have to live up to. You know, it might be getting a little closer to home now. 
we'll keep going, and you might find yourself in one of these demographics. But, but it's, it's, um, he, he's highlighting expectations for these different groups. And so he goes on to do the same thing for older women in verse 3. He says, in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They're to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. So the, the focus here is on being good examples for younger women, just like the focus with the section on older men is to be good examples for the younger men. It's also something we should make note of here is that Paul specifically in this section instructs women to teach. So this helps us kind of interpret um, one of those tricky passages that I think Alan ended up talking about, which is the, the very controversial phrase, the keep silent in the church. Clearly, that's not meant to be taken exactly literally because women are told right here to teach. And, and Paul also emphasizes the uh, importance of, of the ministry of the home with, with regards to women's role in the church. And like Alan talked about a, a few weeks ago, if you were here for it, this is it's becoming... Uh, increasingly rare to see that guarded. The ministry of the home is something that's, that we should guard. And it's, it's one of those things from our culture that slips in. And I think a lot of times in the church, we're, we kind of have our radar up for things in the culture. And there's a lot of things that come our way. And we know like, oh, that's, that's definitely not from God. Like that's, that's of the enemy. That's of the world. And we shut those things down. I think neglecting the ministry of the home tends to slip past a lot of those radars. Um, and, and so we've, we've seen already that the home is a picture of the church. And, and I think this, um, the, the stress that Paul, the emphasis that Paul places on taking that seriously and being there um, for husbands and children is, is just another reinforcement that this needs to be taken seriously. And, and this theme will also apply to how we raise up young people in the church. You know, it's another picture where the home and the church are very connected to each other. And the next group he instructs specifically is younger men. So verse 6, he says, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So interestingly, in this section, like, self-control seems to be kind of the only attribute he gives, the only characteristic he gives or instructs young men to have, um, which is interesting, but I, I think it's likely because this is one of the biggest problems for young men, right? I can speak for that demographic a little personally, uh, and I think the world comes after young men and really young people generally more intensely maybe than any other demographic because there's, there's just this age, especially now, this might not have been true you know, before I was born, but it's especially true now because of social media and the fact that we live in this age of constant comparison, and it's a, a huge contributor. And so young people, we have our part to do in this. I don't want to ignore that, right? Like, we need to be very diligent about the, the um, forces that the world has set against us, right? Diligent about our use of social media, diligent about how much time we're spending in prayer and in the Word, but also... There's, there's older men and older women that have a part to do in this fight as well, and it's what, it's what Paul has already written, which is that they're to be good examples for the younger men and the younger women. 
and we need you guys. Like, we really need you guys because we leave this place, we leave the church, and we don't have those good examples oftentimes. Maybe there's a rare few that do. But this place is where we have the privilege of older men and older women showing us what it looks like to have a life that has been dedicated to God and lived for God for many, many years. Um, and so there's, there's also a responsibility on the teachers and on the pastors with this, where that's what he says in the, the last section of this verse, your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say. There's, there's so often young people will leave a message, leave a church, hear a sermon, and immediately it'll get attacked on social media. Especially if they're part of a larger church, people will actually get that sermon directly and start critiquing it. But there's so many people who have made a following out of just critiquing people's messages, critiquing people's beliefs. And so it's why these, these surface-level churches, surface-level sermons are not really working anymore. It's why we see so many young people either church hopping. I mean, there's kind of two directions they tend to go in this situation. A lot of young people will get tired of the surface-level stuff because it gets refuted so quickly. You know, they hop on the internet, they, they have a very shallow foundation, somebody refutes it, they start deconstructing their faith, and they leave entirely. Or they find a church that's actually going to take the word seriously and not give them a motivational speech with a couple of out-of-context verses. And that's what we're hoping for. That's what we want to drive more towards, and we want to be that place. But that's the responsibility of the teachers, the pastors, the elders in the church to make sure that our, our teaching is, has a firm enough foundation that when they leave, nobody is able to undermine that because it's based on the word. And it's not based on the elders or teachers or whoever's own thoughts or opinions. It's actually something that's truly unshakable. And the word is the only thing that is. It's the only thing that is. So that there's one final group that he addresses here, and that's slaves. Interesting. So slaves, slaves. I'm going to read verse 9, and then I'll explain a little bit about slavery in the Bible. But verse 9 says, Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything, and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness, so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. All right, this is one I could spend a lot of time on, too, but... I'm not going to. Uh, I do want. I, I think it's important for us to actually understand. I, I just talked about people undermining our faith and questions. Slavery is a huge one that people will use um, to to undermine Christianity and to start getting us to question what we believe in that sort of thing. So it's important for us to have an understanding of what this is and how it worked in Scripture. So it, there's a couple things I want to say about this. One is that. It's not at all what comes to mind when we think of the term slavery. Um, this is much more similar to uh, indentured servitude, is what they called it when I was in school. And so it's like, um, it's, it's not forced. It's not, this is not uh, trafficking-based. It's not fueled by kidnapping the way modern slavery and even recent slavery has been. It's not based on race whatsoever. Um, and slaves were not actually even forced into this. That's why a lot of translations use the term servant because they entered into an agreement. This is basically a contract thing, where a, a slave or servant would enter into an agreement to work for a certain master for X number of years, usually seven years. And after that, they would be free if they wanted to. So they signed this contract, and then when it's over, they, so they have freedom on both sides of this thing. A lot of them, in fact, would actually sign consecutive contracts for the same master, because they're, however, however many years would run up, and they would say, wait a minute, like, they got, a lot of times in these situations, they were getting shelter, they were getting food, and a, a good portion of them were also getting a wage on top of that. 
Now, it's certainly nothing that's going to make them rich, but it was provision. And so that's why you, you would actually, it's not, it wouldn't be uncommon to see a servant enter into more than one contract because they were kind of okay with it. And, um, and, and so it's a viable alternative, I guess you could say, to like if you're in a bad situation and you're facing homelessness, for example, this would have been a viable way to keep a roof over your head, to keep food in your stomach, and to possibly earn a little bit as well. But despite that, so now we know what this kind of looked like. It's not the slavery we tend to picture in our heads. But despite that, we, we have to recognize that Paul's mention of slavery is not him condoning it. Even this loosely practiced version of it, it it's just like how there's an instruction in, uh, in the word about divorce, for example, right? Like, what are the conditions where it's acceptable to get a divorce and where it's not? It's like, it's a matter of acknowledging the current situation, circumstances, and instructing the believers on how to navigate that difficult thing. It's, it's not an endorsement of the practice itself. It's not God hates slavery as much as he does divorce, but it was still necessary for the believers to have instructions on how to navigate those things because it's the reality of living in a fallen world. So with that context in mind around what we're talking about, that's, that's why we see Paul tell them here to demonstrate faithfulness and to be essentially to be good ambassadors for him in the bad situation that they're in. So whatever circumstances you're in, whether this is, you know, a slavery or otherwise, all of these above groups, so we, older men, older women, younger men, slaves, they have specific instructions, yes, but there is still a standard that the entire body of Christ has to live up to regardless of demographic. So if you thought that you were not one of the four groups in that list and you're getting out scot-free, like, buckle up, because it's not going to work that way. The, the, the list, while it's not, like, totally exhaustive, it still shows us that, elder or not, we all have a standard that we have to live up to. And the trap that we fall into so often, or, or Christians in general, is to think that we can just show up on a Sunday and that that can be the extent of our Christian walk. And I love, it's one of the reasons I love this church so much and I love you guys so much is because there's so, such a willingness and a passion and an excitement around serving and it's incredible. But that's not the norm where we're at, especially in the South. In the Bible Belt, like, I would argue the majority of Christians are under the impression that they can go to church, you know, spend 90 minutes out of every seven days in, the, in a building like this, and they're good. That's enough to keep God off their backs, they would say, you know? And, and it's really, really dangerous to live that way. Because the, the, the call to ignore that call that we've been given, the call to holiness that's in here and it's in several other scriptures, the call to live a godly life that's actually surrendered and laid down to him and not just for those 90 minutes, probably more than 90 today, um, it is, it's not something that we can really get away with diminishing. And that's what we're doing if we say that, you know, we're, we're okay just going to church once a week, or maybe I'll go to a small group too, I don't know, like... If we, if we live that way, it's diminishing what Jesus did by saying, you know, you're great, and what you did for me was great, but I'm only going to respond this much because it's what I feel like. And that's, that thought should scare us. We should be appalled at the thought of responding to the gospel with nothing more than a once-a-week church attendance. And what that shows to me is it shows a lack of understanding of what the gospel is a lack of what you've truly been saved from. 
because then you'll have to respond a certain way. And so Paul will, will explain this, um, this final section here. Maybe it's not the final section. I don't know. I think it is. Uh, verse 11, starting in verse 11, chapter 2, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So, again, elder or not, we, we all have been equally saved by this grace. And we all have been equally called to God. Like, that applies to everyone in the church. And so it's true that there are more specific qualifications for, for elders, but there's also very, very real consequences of straying from that lifestyle of holiness, even if you're not in leadership. And a life of holiness is, is what brings the fruit of the Spirit into your life. I mean, it's the, the you know, patience when your kids are acting up or joy in the middle of trials or peace when everything is just like utterly falling apart or slightly falling apart personally. Like I lose peace when things go a little wrong. It doesn't take much to like just throw me off. So like, but that, that, that life of godliness is what, is what brings the fruit of, spirit, of the Spirit into your life. And the only way to get there, I would argue, is to be able to, and to really be able to stick with it, is to be consumed with the gospel. It's a thorough understanding of what the gospel is and what we've been saved from. And as a result of that, to live in a constant state of awe of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Because this is, it's, it's a twofold thing that this accomplishes. One, it's how we can ensure that we are putting the right leadership in place, like we talked about with elders' qualifications. If we, as a church body, are not living a gospel-centered life, we have no chance at having good leadership appointed by us, right? It's, it's also the thing that empowers us to live up to our own calling, to live up to the call of holiness, to live up to the instructions given in this letter for all these different groups. So the, the gospel has to be the driving force of our lives. It has to, because the fact that Jesus saved us from a future without hope, without communion with God, that, has, that truth has to become real to us, and it has to determine the way we do everything, the way we interact with coworkers, the way we raise our children, the way we build communities and churches. Without Christ as the cornerstone for those things, without a, a an absolute awe of who he is and what he's done will we'll fail in both of those twofold places that I mentioned. We'll fail to put good leadership in place and we'll fail to lead ourselves and the people under us well. And so there's really not much of an alternative here. Like the, the reality is that if you're not, if, you're, if the, the driving force of your life is not the gospel, it's something else. And the, the gospel and the kingdom of God is the only eternal thing. Like anything else you try and live for, usually it's self or pride or some, some sort of way to serve yourself is what we see a lot in this culture of like, I want to serve myself and I'm only here for this long so I'm going to do everything I can to make me happy and it's all about me. Like that's very temporary. Very temporary. Like we forget 
Like, you, all of y'all are going to live forever, like, if you've forgotten that. And, and so, it seems really dumb, and, and with that broader perspective, to take this one grain of sand on the beach and just sit there looking at it and worrying about it for your whole 80 years or however long you're here. Like, the alternative is really to live a life that's hopeless and doesn't have much of a point. So that's why everything we do has to be for God's glory, and it has to be from a place of, wow, you're so good, and it's a response thing. We don't just live these lives of, of, of godliness because the book tells us to. We do it because we understand, one, what we've been saved from, which is incredible, and two, what we've been saved into. And it's, it's a response thing, because when that becomes real to you, and by the way, it becomes real through communion and fellowship with God, through time in his word and through praying. And when that becomes real to you, it's, it's a response thing that you just can't help, because you understand the magnitude and the weight and the gravity of what you've been saved from. And so I, I want to, we'll sing a, a probably shortened worship song in a second here at the end, but, but before we do that, I want to pray that we would have the confidence, because it does take confidence, to say yes to that godly lifestyle, because really the alternative is not very valuable, and, and this gospel-driven life is the only way that we stand much of a chance. So, Father God, I just pray right now that we would not fall into the trap of believing that this lifestyle of holiness and godliness is something reserved for only certain people in the church, um, that we wouldn't believe that it's um, just for certain, certain elders or leadership, that we would accept that call and recognize that it's for us, Lord. I pray that we would, we would be eager and excited to lay ourselves down, to be used by you however you, wherever you could place us and whatever you choose to do with us, Lord, I just pray that we would be a surrendered people. I pray that we would be, become lovers of your presence, Lord, that that would be how we spend our time, Lord, that, that the distractions of this world would have no hold on us, but that we would be so captivated and so in awe of the truth of the gospel that we would long to spend our free time with you. Lord, I pray for the boldness that's needed in today's culture to stand against the enemy. I pray for the, the boldness to live a wildly gospel-centered life, elder or not, leadership or not, whatever, whoever it is, Lord, that we all have to have this. We all have to have this level of boldness to go out into the world and to bring a message that is so counter, counter to the, the culture. And I just pray that we would be so in love with you that we would do anything, or that that boldness would come naturally because we love you so much, God. In Jesus' name.